We hear a lot of perspectives on the Mankind Podcast. Inclusion of a guest is not an endorsement of their views, and the opinions expressed here do not always represent the mission or values of the Mankind Project USA. Looks like the rain has gone. Hey everybody, it's Boysen Hodgson. Welcome back to the Mankind Podcast. I am super excited today. The Mankind Podcast, where we are setting out to prove that there is indeed more than one way to be a man in the world. And I think we're proving it again and again. Today, I am with Steve McIntosh. I have been aware of Steve's work for years. I'm going to read some of the titles of some of his books and... Uh, I just feel super honored. Steve, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Boyson. It's a pleasure to be with you. So Steve McIntosh, JD, is a leader in integral philosophy movement and author of Developmental Politics, How America Can Grow Into a Better Version of Itself. He's the president and co-founder of the Institute for Cultural Evolution Think Tank, which focuses on the cultural roots of America's political problems. Steve is also co-author with John Mackey of Whole Foods, fame and Carter Phipps of the book, Conscious Leadership, Elevating Humanity Through Business. He's also authored three previous books on integral philosophy, The Presence of the Infinite, Evolution's Purpose, and Integral Consciousness and the Future of Evolution. Before becoming a writer and a social entrepreneur, Steve had a variety of other successful careers, including founding a consumer products company, Now and Zen, practicing law with one of America's largest firms. His innovative political thinking has been featured on a whole bunch of places. NPR, USA Today, The Daily Beast, Real Clear Politics, The Hill, The National Journal, and in a wide variety of other media. He's an honors graduate of the University of Virginia Law School and the University of Southern California Business School. Steve grew up in Los Angeles, now lives in Boulder, Colorado, with his wife and his two sons. Steve, thank you again. Uh, so in your bio, right from the get, right, is Integral Philosopher. So some of our readers in the Mankind Project out there in the world know that Integral philosophy has been a study that a lot of us in the Mankind Project have kind of taken on as a way of seeing the world, of, of understanding development, of understanding progressions from things one thing to another. But now I get to sit with a bona fide integral philosopher. So, Steve, let's start there. What's integral philosophy? Sure. Well, integral philosophy is a spiritual philosophy of evolution that focuses on the universe's process of becoming, right, from the Big Bang to our present age. But it has a special focus on the evolution of, of culture and consciousness, how those two, the inside and the outside, the, you know, the, the collective and the individual, uh, are evolving. And it's not this, this becoming in uh, the realm of human society and history. It's not just a, um, an analogy with evolution. It's actually part of this universal understanding of evolution, right? Although we don't attempt to reduce cultural evolution, the evolution of human consciousness, to a biological process, right? It's distinct. What ties, you know, the evolution of consciousness and culture together with biological evolution and the cosmological evolution of stars and planets and the periodic table, right, before the emergence of life, is that there's this, uh, this structure of emergence whereby something more keeps coming from something less and the something more takes up and uses that which has been created before right so we see this structure in our bodies right from the uh, hydrogen atoms in our molecules through the periodic table in our bones through the the, the tree of life right in our, our organs and our vital structures but we also see this structure of emergence in human history in the current state of modern consciousness that we're all using, right, to participate in this modern culture. So understanding specifically how consciousness evolves and how it co-evolves with culture uh, is not only fascinating in its own right, it also points to how we can sustainably and responsibly work for a more evolved world. 
how many of the problems that we face in this current time are the result of growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've grown to the point where we're kind of stretched out, right? So we no longer right. cohere as a governable entity, especially in America. But understanding this growth as a form of evolution really underscores how um, the solution to almost every one of our problems is to grow further, right? In- integral philosophy understands that almost every human problem can be understood at least partially as a problem of consciousness in the sense that evolving consciousness is, is the way to, to solve that problem. Now, you know how consciousness evolves, it's a matter of uh, gentle persuasion. We certainly don't have any coercive programs for uh, uh, cultivating the evolution of consciousness. It's not something you can socially engineer. Right. But like growing a garden, right? You can create the conditions. You can understand the processes. You can water it. You can, you know, help the the energy uh, that it needs to grow. There's all kinds of ways that we can be active stewards and agents of the evolution of consciousness and culture. And so, integral philosophy is uh, very pragmatic because it uh, it has not only spiritual implications for the development of each individual, it's also got political implications for the further development of our society. And I'm just going to take one word and then ask you to expand. So it's a developmental model, right, for evolution of consciousness. So what are some of the things that got pulled into, so integral, right? We are integrating from many things. What are some of the things that have been pulled into integral philosophy in its kind of composition? Sure. Well, the best way to, to frame or answer that question is to talk about the, the lineage of, of uh, what we now recognize as integral philosophy. Um, really, it begins before, it, 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 as characterized it as a, as a philosophy of evolution, right? One that recognizes not only the exterior development of evolutionary structures and organisms and, and societies, but also an interior development of values and worldviews, right? So the first uh, philosophers to begin to recognize that this process of universal becoming had deep significance were the German idealish, idealists philosophers, right, at the beginning of the 19th century, like Fichte and Hegel. Um, Hegel was really the first one to see how human history is evolving, even before Darwin showed how biological life was evolving. But it wasn't long after Darwin that uh, philosophers began to understand that, that human history was a at least analogous to the evolution of biology. Right? They didn't have a big picture of uh, evolutionary unfolding, but the, the fact that things keep developing, there's an unfolding in history and an unfolding in life, that, that the, the revelation of that, the revelation of evolution, really began uh, a, a variety of branches of philosophy, right? Many of the philosophies of evolution are strictly physical, right? Strictly materialistic. But this branch, beginning really with Hegel and continuing through a winding path of different philosophers, right? Integral philosophy is certainly not just a Hegelian philosophy, right? We have others in the lineage such as Henri Bergson, who at the beginning of the 19th century really began to unpack the spiritual implications of, of our evolving universe. And uh, Bergson influenced two of the major founders of integral philosophy, who are Alfred North Whitehead and Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And uh, Teilhard and Whitehead really, com- even though they didn't know about each other's work, Together, they constitute kind of a spirit of understanding that's been a, a seed crystal for this you know, further development of, of integral philosophy since their time, right? They both, uh, Whitehead died in 1947 and Teilhard in 1955. Um, other significant contributors to this understanding uh, in, in include uh, Jean Gebser, uh, uh, the, the Indian philosopher Sri Aurobindo, uh, and then, really beginning in the 1980s, the American philosopher Ken Wilber. Now, uh, we, some might equate integral philosophy with Wilber's thinking. I certainly uh, owe much to his thinking, and, and when I get it right, I stand on his shoulders in some ways. Yes. But I'm not a Wilberian, right? I reject certain of his characterizations, and I think uh, uh, integral philosophy, broadly understood, includes a variety of interpretations. Um, you know, Wilbur's school of thought, the school of thought that I represent, which we might call the synthesis school, 
Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, uh, subtle details uh, in the difference between Wilbur and me and the process philosophy as it's carried on from Whitehead, which is kind of a species of integral philosophy, but again, another school of thought within this broader understanding of evolution. So without getting uh, too nerdy about it, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of what the current body of thought which we might broadly characterize as integral philosophy, at least that's sort of where it comes from. And uh, you mentioned my uh, the nonprofit organization that I co-founded, the Institute of Culture Evolution. Um, myself and our, our board of directors and our senior fellows and all the people who are associated with this institute are dedicated to the advance of, um, of this synthesis school, which we think which has the most, um, the, the, the most power to help heal the um, the torn social fabric of American society that we uh, you know are experiencing in this moment. Beautifully segued uh, right into kind of where we're going. So where we are in this moment. So one of the kind of frameworks, one of the building blocks for integral philosophy and also for developmental politics. Your book and what we're going what we're talking about here today is this idea of worldviews. So and how worldviews interact or don't, let's talk about the three major worldviews that are that you see at play in our culture today and maybe highlight some of their strengths and not so strengths. <laughs> okay, sure. Well, so um, integral philosophy is attempting to sort of understand and describe and analyze uh, cultural evolutions, both uh, from the inside and the outside, right? Because these are they're they're, they're co-evolving together, both the micro and the macro, and the inside and the outside. With the inside understood as not only our subjective internal awareness, but also a kind of collective interior, which we can unpack in a minute. Yes. But just to keep it at the level of worldviews, there are of course many descriptions of, of what we might call the basic units of culture, mm. cultural development. Mm. Right. That, that is, there, there's many different competing theories for how culture does evolve or whether it even does evolve or whether it's sort of going downhill depends on how you see it politically. But as I argue in developmental politics, if we allow for uh, the, the reality of our collective joint commitments, right, which is cool. the, 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 the known in professional philosophy as social ontology, Right. Like, though, so there's there's certainly, you know, we can we can point to language. We can point to, you know, our, our informational infrastructure and, and the Internet and everything else to say these are sort of the external elements that are accumulating to form uh, the trajectory of our development. We can also see how there's a there's an interior development, as I'm saying, that goes along with it. And the best way to frame that is as the um, the values and the beliefs and the joint commitments that frame our identity and provide the horizon of our perspective, right? Yeah. Sort of the, 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 the culture, there's a variety of ways to define it, but if we define it as our, um, the, the, the agreements which bind us together and which, through which we share experiences and we share goals, then if we look through history, we can see that uh, that, that these there, there are macro structures of agreement, complex dynamic systems of agreement that uh, have a kind of metabolism, right? Not an external energy metabolism, but kind of an internal metabolism of, of, of vision and ideals, right? Even the Bible, right? Where there, there is no vision, the people perish. So people hunger for a vision of what the good life is and, and you know what, what it means to, to live a, a righteous life. And uh, this quest to understand what we might call the good, the true, and the beautiful yes. <laughs> has, uh, uh, has created throughout history these structures of culture, mm -hmm. right? So we see, we could see, you know, tribes as an ancient cultural structure that's universal, right? Then beyond tribes, we see in at least some places in the world, the development of, of um, uh, historically significant religious civilizations, right? And, uh, and although the teachings of this, these various religions differ, 
What's remarkably similar is that they all create similar kinds of political structures. Right? You have a king, you have some version of feudalism, and then these re religious civilizations, uh, although they bring new problems, they solve a lot of problems. So they're able to organize much larger segments of humanity, and through writing and architecture and mathematics and all kinds of uh, civilizing discoveries, these ancient religious worldviews uh, managed to create the fascinating and beautiful and sometimes ugly, you know, civilizations that we've inherited from the past. But what really underscores this thesis of worldviews is what's emerged in the last 300 to 400 yes. years, and that is this idea uh, sometimes called modernity, right, which we refer to as the modernist worldview as a collective and modernist consciousness as an individual way of seeing. And uh, we can see a, a distinct break with the emergence of the Enlightenment, right, 350 years ago or so, with the religious civilizations that had existed for thousands of years before the emergence of modernity. We can see a kind of secular, rational prototype of modernist thinking in ancient Greece, and ancient China, and ancient Islam. Many ancient civilizations sort of began to uh, uh, experience or, you know, kind of reach out for this way of seeing. You see one marker of this is realism in art. Right? As art becomes you know, less symbolic and more realistic, that's the emergence of this sort of rational way of seeing. And, and we see it emerge as a kind of a permanent or at least you know, significant structure of human history in the Enlightenment. And while this Enlightenment or modernist way of thinking has gone through many changes and developments within itself uh, over the last 300 years, there's a, a continuity of values, right? The value of progress, right? The value of, 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 of science, the value of uh, economic prosperity, um, the value of innovation and entrepreneurship. All of these elements and many more constitute a, a, a large-scale historical structure which persists across multiple generations and in the places where this worldview has been able to be successfully adopted by the culture, it's created what's been called a great enrichment, right? So even, even these religious civilizations had many uh, material benefits. The majority of people who lived within them consisted on, you know, the modern equivalent of two to three dollars a day. But with the emergence of modernity, we get the middle class, and you know the average person makes more like 130 to 150 dollars a day in in these these countries where modernist culture prevails. So again, that uh, that understanding of a worldview as solving some of the most transient problems in a society and creating a different set of problems at the same time. So in a way that evolves sure. the entire society, right? Yes. Right. Modernity brings liberal values and freedom and prosperity and progress and understanding of the universe, sure. materialism. Yes, all these things. But it also creates, you know, historically significant problems right. that are arguably much worse than any of the problems created by these religious civilizations, which precedes it along the timeline of history. So, for example, environmental destruction, right, nuclear proliferation, uh, gross inequality, all kinds of problems. We might call them negative externalities that result from the emergence of modernist culture. And... and it's, it's because of the accumulating effects of these, not to mention the world wars, which modernity spawned, yes. that um, really from the beginning there have been um, uh, those who've rejected modernity or, or have been the, the critics of modernity. And, and these were mostly you know, intellectuals and artists. But beginning in the 1960s, we see a, a full-scale emergence of a worldview that we can now compare and contrast with modernity and traditionalism, right? Religious traditionalism and secular modernity. And that's this worldview which we call the progressive postmodern worldview, right? Now, the word postmodern is a battleground of meaning. We're not just talking about critical theory. Um, you know, there were progress, you know, Woodrow Wilson was a progressive. That's, that's not what we mean. We're, we're talking about the, the, the culture that democratized the critique of modernity that emerged in the 60s with the hippies movement and then has matured over the decades to now become um, a significant worldview that is, that is uh, held by many of America's elites, right? That this worldview provides a center of gravity, a set of values, um, uh, although it's diverse, it includes, right, in environmental sustainability, social justice, 
um, uh, there, there are many elements of, of um, this progressive worldview, which I think represent a moral advance, right? In other words, modernity is not sustainable, either ecologically or culturally. Right. And so the, the attempt to, to uh, create a better world, to include those who've been left behind by modernity's advance, to compensate the victims of you know, modernity's negative externalities, including colonialism and, and, and degradation of all kinds. So, so this progressive postmodern worldview, right, which, again, is not universally recognized and may be disputable as a defined term, right. But for purposes of this conversation, we'll call it progressivism, right, which is a sort of this contemporary understanding. It has many beautiful moral aspects, and indeed, I think it's an attempt to really find a sense of transcendence, a sense of greater cause or higher purpose, which modernity had at the beginning. In other words, modernity's transcendent proposition yes. was upward mobility, right. right? People were starving, and all of a sudden they become middle class, Although we take that for granted, you know, those of us who are educated Americans, right? The, the, for, for people who, who've been, you know, locked in poverty for countless generations, for them to be able to afford an air conditioner and an automobile, that's significant transcendence. Right. But as we see the pattern of development of these worldviews, as it's been called, the, the god of one becomes the devil of the next. Yes. Right. So, you know, the traditional God is rejected by modernity. Modernity's God could be characterized as progress. Right. So post-modernity, progressive post-modernity, it views progress. It takes a dim view. Right. It sees it as sort of run away. And, and the idea that the things are even progressing is questioned. Right. And the, the preferred value is, is more a relativistic understanding of the fact that we're all humans and it's uh, Eurocentric or hubristic to claim that, you know, one form of culture is more evolved than another. But, of course, that very proposition is pregnant with its own contradiction because the idea that value relativism is superior to a hierarchy of values is itself in a hierarchy claiming to be better. So, you know, progressive postmodernism has all kinds of interesting contradictions. But as it's been trying to make the world a better place over the last 50 years, I think it has made 60 years, 70 years, it has made some significant progress. And I think it'll, many of the problems that it arises to solve have yet to be solved. So there's plenty of important work to do for both modernity, right? The majority of the world is still in a kind of a pre-modern condition. Right. Uh, it's not, we're not describing a linear sequence of progress. Yeah, that's good. And, 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 and the, the timeline of these emergences is, is not an argument for a, a, a greater value. But it's not just my value judgment to point out that people in the developing world are very uh, uh, are very attracted to and are energetically pursuing a more middle class modernist lifestyle, right? And people who have that lifestyle are questioning, you know, the the vacuity of just seeking status and material, right? So so we can begin to see how these worldviews solve problems, create new problems, and then. Um, uh, give rise to new worldviews. It's it, it's it's a what's been called a dialectical progression. Yes. And the best way I'll say one more thing: the best way to understand this progression is a little bit like a, a sailboat tacking against the wind, right? We're, so we're trying to make things better or solve problems, and but a sailboat can't sail directly into the wind. It has to advance obliquely. It has to tack back and forth. And so we we're, we're solving one set of problems with one set of joint commitments or one, you know, the, the, the trajectory of one worldview goes as far as it can, but then it increasingly goes off course, and then there has to be a tack, a, a kind of a pushing off uh, of the previous worldview, and in many cases, a, a, a complete rejection of that previous worldview, um, which creates this pattern of back and forth. Each one of these worldviews has an important set of values that we need, but each one also needs a correction eventually. And now we're approaching the time in history where, although progressive postmodernism still has important work to do, although it's still um, the, the, you know, the tip of growth in terms of the, 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 the most recent large-scale worldview to appear in history, right. um, here in America especially, we're beginning to see the limitations of progressive postmodernism. Right? Every one of these worldviews has what's called both dignities and disasters, right? negatives and positives. And the negatives of progressive postmodernism as it gains cultural power, are becoming more and more evident, 
which signals the opportunity for the sailboat to, uh, hopefully before too long, tack in a new direction, at least among a certain portion of the population, that can act as a corrective to the excesses of progressive postmodernism and re-include the best of everything that's come before. That Well said. Re-include the best of everything that's come before. So things I want to highlight in here that you go into in developmental politics a little bit is that all of these particular worldviews have a set of values and internal consistencies and inconsistencies within them. So they each have self-contradiction. They each have logical fallacy kind of built into them. They want this thing and this thing, which are opposed in some way within them. And that none of them have, none of them are, there's no start time and end time to any of these worldviews. They're all kind of coexistent and co-arising, as as Wilbur would talk about, right? So, modernism. Well, they do have start times, you know, in the timeline of history, right? right? Modernity, right, doesn't exist until you know Rene Descartes in the 1640s. We could say, and it's not going to disappear. So, right, right? and traditionalism hasn't disappeared, and developments even before that worldview, the worldviews are still kind of encompassed within whatever is emergent now. Would you agree with that? Sure. Sure. Yeah. We can we can identify um, uh, you know pre traditional worldviews yes. that still exist in the world, right? right? Pre pre literate worldviews, right? For the most part, because writing is one of the things that establishes the traditional worldview. Um, but this is really the first time in history where we've had uh, three major worldviews okay. kind of online at the same time, each representing a major demographic segment of our society, right? Like we can still see the pre-traditional in gang and prison culture. We can see traditional in the you know significant um, demographic of evangelicals and you know Orthodox Jews and many you know religionist segments of American culture, right? If we think about it as a Python effect, right, where there's a kind of a bulge in the middle, we can also see how modernity was was the form of culture that birthed the United States and its liberal, you know, constitution right, sure. and values, and that still is the center of gravity, we might say, for American culture. But as I mentioned over the last seventy years, this this you know, third major worldview has emerged and gained major ground. And it's hard to estimate exactly how many people use this worldview as their center of gravity, right? These are these are not so much types of people as they are types of consciousness within people. And most people use, you know, for example, two kinds of consciousness. So right. they might use traditional consciousness on Sunday and modernist consciousness on Monday. Um, but some are deeply embedded and thoroughly identify with and embody these uh, almost in a stereotypical manner. So we need to understand these worldviews as cultural structures that interpenetrate our minds, but for most of us don't strictly determine who we are. Beautiful. And some of the things that modernism emerged and solved global communications, the proliferation of information, the internet, the like all of these things, right? Also complicate the fact that we have three powerful worldviews, all very present and transparent to one another. And, you know, right. Twitter, right. Your perspective on Twitter. (laughs) Unfortunately, the transparency only goes to the negatives. For the most part, each one of these worldviews sees the other two primarily for their pathologies and not for their values, which is what has created our current culture war. Perfect. Uh, So now what? Like the question that I put in our Google document is, so what? So why is it important that we start thinking about these things in terms of their interdependences rather than just the polarities? And as you said, that like, the postmodernists see all the flaws of modernism. Wilbur talks about it as allergies, right? We're allergic to what came before and allergic to what comes after. So why do we need so, to rethink this? Yeah, well, why do we need to understand the development of human culture uh, more accurately, right, from the inside and the outside, and to see it you know, through a big picture as well as in the microcosm of our own awareness? I think the, the 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 best answer, the top answer, is that we're facing global challenges for which uh, we need political will, right? We we need to form agreements and and have a collective intention that is necessary to solve these problems. With probably uh, you know climate change and global warming being the number one problem for which there lacks adequate political will. Yes. 
And so the, the political will to address climate change is strong at the progressive postmodern level. But one of the problems with progressive postmodernism is that it's, you know, even though it's culturally powerful, it's still relatively uh, politically impotent yes. in the sense that uh, it, it's not able to persuade the majority of, of America to vote or consume or otherwise live according to postmodern values. Um, and I think there are good reasons for that. Uh, but the idea that our, our torn social fabric not only prevents us from solving the problems that call for urgent solutions in our time, but it's also uh, it, it's also a means that our nation is in distress. And although, you know, progressive postmodernism sort of takes a dim view of nationalism in general, if you think of themselves as global citizens, there are still many good reasons to care, even if you're a uh, progressive postmodernist, about the, the welfare and the future course of America as a nation, right? We can't just jump outside of history and declare a, a global civilization, global government, right? We wouldn't want that. We, we, we still have to work within the confines of, of the political organizations that we have at this time of history, and those are still bounded by the structure of the nation state, right? There's no sort of international politics. It's almost an oxymoron, although there's certainly negotiations and international cooperation is good where you can get it. But in terms of, of, of working with politics to make uh, uh, things better here in the United States, it's still worth focusing on America as a country, as a historical emergence, as perhaps one of the greatest things that's ever occurred in human history, despite uh, the problems and the, and the crimes that it's uh, perpetrated. Um, I think we should care about America. And so caring about America points us to the fact that, as I mentioned, America's social fabric is, is torn, right? Not just between left and right. But between these three major worldviews, right, between the religious worldview, traditionalism, the modernist worldview, and, and the, the progressive postmodern worldview, now, while this represents a crisis, it also represents an opportunity, right? If we, if we pull back and look at evolution overall, and although cultural evolutions can be conflated with biological evolution, there are certain universal patterns that prevail and are worth noticing. One pattern is as it was originally described by Herbert Spencer uh, before Darwin, is that evolution unfolds through a series of differentiations and then a higher level of integration, mm. right? As Whitehead, uh, Whitehead's famous dictum, many become one and are increased by one, right? So this process of development, when we see a differentiation, as we're seeing right now, as America's been stretched out through the emergence of postmodernism and the, the continuation, the loyalty of traditionalists, Right? We used to be much closer together in history. Yes. Now we all live kind of in different times in history, you might say, at least partially with respect to our values. And this differentiation can, of course, lead to a regression. I mean, there's many forces of decay that we can see are resulting from the culture war. But according to our understanding of evolution, we can also you know, predict or at least hope that a higher level of integration is possible. It's not that, it, that all these worldviews are going to just be mashed together and become one, or that the conflicts between them are going to be um, you know, sort of uh, explained away or otherwise ignored. The conflicts, the differences between these worldviews help shape and charge their respective values, right? Just so it's very important. But with this integral understanding, we can begin to see how it's possible to go to this higher level of integration. Right, And so the, the best way to understand that is through another pattern of evolution, which is related to this idea of differentiation and integration. And that is the idea of, of transcendence and inclusion. Like I said, right, there's yes. this structure of transcendence. You know, our, our, our molecules transcend and include our atoms, our cells transcend and include our molecules, etc. Um, and this transcendent and included pattern has sometimes been understood through the the construct of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. synthesis. Yeah. Right. Right. Cool. This is an oversimplification, of course. But for purposes of our conversation, it's worth talking about. So we the pattern repeats across scale. Right. You can see it within the development of every worldview, and then across the worldview. So I'm not trying to force fit my description of cultural evolution into this you know kind of rigid pattern. But it nevertheless is evident. If we look at the character of progressive post, the progressive postmodern worldview, right, much of its much of its evolutionary power, much of its um, ability to evolve and become a major structure of culture, is predicated on a kind of rejection of modernity and traditionalism, 
railing against traditional mores, railing against the destruction of modernity. It's almost as if, even though progressive postmodernism has many different strands right. and camps and, and ideologies, yeah. what binds all these together is this spirit of what we might call antithesis, right? It, it's, it's, it, at least at this time in history, it's a kind of a militant um, uh, a protest, and that's how it emerged, right, in the 60s. And that's sure. its character has continued to this day, right? We see it in uh, many strains of progressive postmodernism. And again, these are not all wrong. These critiques are, are uh, um, you know, it, it well received yeah. and well and important in many ways. Yes. Right. But if we can see this progressive postmodern worldview has emerged over the last 70 years and really in the United States become a significant cultural structure in its own right, although it's hard for many modernists to kind of see it as a cultural structure. They just see it as the far left or something. But, but we can begin to understand it as this um, significant structure which, whose development, whose values, whose shortcomings point the way for the next tack of the sailboat. In other words, the, the, the antithesis in this understanding of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis points to the opportunity for this next emergent worldview along the timeline of history, which is very synthetic in character because it can its value structure can include all the important values of progressivism, but also reclaim the, the, the values of modernity and traditionalism, which postmodernism rejects. Right, so so postmodernism makes its advance partially by becoming more inclusive, right. by including concerns for the environment and those who've been marginalized and the victims. And this is very, you know, of course, commendable and, and a significant development is to be more inclusive. But this inclusivity, for the most part, only extends to those who share the same worldview. Right, so you know the idea that there that progressivism is very concerned about you know physical diversity, but when it comes to viewpoint diversity, they're not quite as keen. So if we can admit that the direction of greater inclusion is at least one way that culture evolves, then we begin to appreciate the, that the synthesis, by its very nature, as it's described philosophically, is able to include the thesis and the antithesis in a higher level of integration, right? And, and so that's what this integral philosophy isn't just a, an observation about the three major worldviews. It also constitutes the beginning of uh, a fourth major worldview, one that comes off beyond progressive postmodernism, right? The logic is simple. Postmodernism has evolved over the last 70 years. It's not the end of history. And while it still has work to do, something comes after it. And although it'll be, all these worldviews will be active and functioning and developing in their own way and continuing to be in conflict throughout our lives and beyond, of course, the beginning of the synthesis can in some ways mark a kind of a second enlightenment, yeah. right? In the same way that the emergence of modernity changed the world for the better and, you know, created new problems, this next great phase of human history that's emerging on the horizon right now has to be something like the description of the inner worldview because that's where, that's the opportunity we, that, that's where we can go. What does it mean to be more inclusive than postmodernism? It means including modernity and traditionalism and, and you know, the wisdom of tribalism and all the worldviews in human history. And um, the details of integral philosophy and the values and the perspectives that it brings makes this kind of synth synth synthesis a real possibility. It's not just a superficial kumbaya, let's all just come together and realize we're all one people, although that's part of it too. It involves detailed political uh, uh, strategies and, and even tactics for how we can integrate uh, these diverse values into a larger whole. That was a mouthful. <laughs> well, you know, it takes a little while to describe this. It, it, that's that's wonderful. So synthesis as kind of a, uh, an operating principle to bring things back together and things that I want to point out. Well, first of all, how do we uh, avoid uh, framing so, so many of these things into positions that end up being straw men <laughs> like this. I, I see that happen a lot. So I'm, you know, I'm part of a culture. I'm part of the U S culture. I'm part of the culture of my city here that I live in. I'm also part of the culture of the mankind project. And we talked about the mankind project a little bit where some of these worldviews are definitely clashing in internally. And something that I hear frequently, especially when it's in 
non-face-to-face communications, right? Email communications and chat lists and comment streams and all of that kind of stuff is straw man arguments positing that because I know you're such and such, then you are going to believe X, Y, and Z, or you all think that this is all true. I think this starts to point at what you want in developmental politics, which is values integration and also a reframe on polarity. So start Mm -hmm. to talk about that. But I hear it so much these days and, you know, the biggest logical fallacy, but straw man arguments constantly putting forward like so-and-so says such as a, well, when did they say that? And who said that? And how do you know that they believe that kind of questions? Sure. Well, one of the ways that I can respond to that, you know, pointing out of the cultural animosity, you know, that haunts the internet and so many other segments of our, of our uh, commons, uh, is the, the lack of what we might call cultural intelligence. Ah. And if you Google cultural intelligence, it's mostly business manners, right? Like when you go to Japan, you're supposed to bow and hand the, your colleague your card. And that's a good thing. But, but when we talk about cultural evolution, um, we're talking about the ability to recognize how these large-scale cultural structures interpenetrate your own thinking and the ability to recognize not just the negatives of the other cultures that you might oppose or otherwise not uh, identify with, um, to see how these, these major structures of culture actually form a, an internal cultural ecosystem, that their values are interdependent. And so this practice, it, it, it's, it's a practice of cultural intelligence, which um, begins to, to recognize that each one of these worldviews has both positive values that we continue to need and that, that constitute this interdependent ecosystem, as well as negative pathologies, as I've been talking about. These are more like a scaffolding of the structure that were necessary to deal with the negative life conditions that that right. prevailed at the time right. of these uh, original emergence of these worldviews, right. and these this scaffolding is stubborn; it sticks around, right? So we can recognize many beautiful values of traditionalism, but we can also recognize right sexism and homophobia and you know racism and all kinds of things. We can we can recognize very positive values of. of uh, modernity and how it's it you know we continue to need r- rational scientific understanding <laughs> yes. right even though we may uh, decry you know some of the the neg- negative externalities that come from it so being able to see that all three of these major worldviews have very important values that constitute a significant level of emergence in cultural evolution, but like all patterns of evolution, that, that there's a, 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 an inclusion. There's, there's, to the extent that, that our set of values rejects mm. the values that came before or the values that come after, then in a sense we're, we're, we're dissociated from the larger ecosystem, right? That is, we, we're, um, we're discounting or otherwise um, rejecting values that, that that, for example, progressive postmodern values depend upon and rely upon uh, a free society, right, and, and a prosperous yes. society that gives you know people the opportunity to focus on cultural issues. And, and in turn, the prosperity and freedom and liberty of modernity depends on the civilizing influences of, of fair play that are brought about by the traditional world. Cohesion. So these, cohesion, these, these aren't just loyalty, past structures. Yes. Right. Even if we reject religion or we reject consumerism, we're still using the positive values of these earlier stages because the, the later appearing stages depend on them as a sort of platform for their development. So this, this method of um, cultural intelligence, you know, this practice of cultural intelligence, has a method that we call values integration, which involves integrating these values. And that involves uh, uh, another sort of technique which is, um, you know, known uh, comes to us through polarity theory, right? Which is a, would take me a while to explain in any kind of um, um, detailed way. Yes. But the the gist of it is that, as I mentioned, that these these worldviews have emerged. The sailboats tack back and forth, and these hinges of history, the point of tacking, these dialectical separations where one worldview, you know, breaks free of the previous one and defines itself you know, in, in its own way, but also in opposition to what came before, that these these um, these structures, these, these moments of emergence, which continue to function in the present, show up as conflicts. But what we can begin to understand is that, you know, 
at the heart of some of these conflicts, not every conflict is a, uh, a living dialectical you know, hinge of history, but we begin to see that, that as, we, as we, I mentioned that these structures that we're talking about, these worldviews, these are structures of values, values agreements. And as we look at the dynamic behavior of values in the evolution of culture and consciousness, there are many wonderful things we can begin to notice about them, right? So as, as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, you know, every natural fact is a, a symbol of some higher spiritual fact. And so the natural fact of energy and, and matter and the way the physical universe works at least provides some clue to how this internal universe of consciousness and culture work. And one of the central features of this universe is, is how values are not just static propositions. They're more like energy flows. Right? That They attract us. They motivate us. They, they lure us, as Whitehead uh, talked about, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Right? They, they, they are really the mo some of the most important features of our lives. You know, they're what our attention is drawn to. There's a sort of magnetic center. And so when we begin to see values, at least through the analogy of, of energy and metabolism, we can begin to recognize that there's, there, there are ways in which values behave. That, that is, almost all values um, are in a dynamic relationship with a polar counterpart. Mm. Right? So we can talk about real and ideal or simple and complex, or liberty and equality. Or maybe we might think about you know, competition and cooperation, or grievance and gratitude even. That is, whenever you have something that creates value, like cooperation, or you know, a political grievance, a sophisticated understanding, a culturally intelligent understanding of that value, is this understanding how the value-creating capacity of that very value is partially dependent upon the moderating influence of its polar counterpart. Mm -hmm. So even though we may have a preferred pole that we, uh, that, that we align with or, yes. or generally identify with, the, the best way we can maximize the value-creating potential of that preferred value is by understanding the polar structure in which it participates, right? So we want cooperation, you know, uh, but... But competition, I mean, too much cooperation by itself kind of leads to pathology, right? Too much complexity by itself needs moderation from, uh, you know, fr from simplicity, right? Too much, um, uh, too much idealism needs to get real. You know, too much realism needs to be, Visionary. you know, understand the impor importance of, of, you know, hoping for a better world. So, so each one, of, when, you, when it comes to an uh, indestructible, interdependent, value polarity, like the ones I'm talking about, we can begin to see a kind of a principle, which is that um, the best way to, when you're faced with a positive, positive value, where you have good versus good, not just good versus bad, the best way to forward the value of our preferred pole is to affirm the values of, or the, you know, the value creating capacities of the, our yeah, polar counterpart, mm. right? So that's a sort of abstract way of describing it, but that, gets very pragmatic when we think about the best way for progressives to, in, in our current cultural situation, to forward their values is to be a, a little bit more uh, uh, sympathetic to the values of modernity and uh, the values of traditionalism, right? That, that this, this, the polarity exists not just between left and right, that there's a polarity between traditionalism and modernity, a polarity between modernity and post-modernity, and now we're beginning to see this polarity between the progressive postmodern worldview and this emerging integral worldview, you know, that I represent. That's very well said. In the, in the book, remind me of the it was that the these polarities are not battles to be won, but energies to be managed, right? Something sure. is right, right. I, um, um, uh, Barry uh, Johnson is a business consultant who's been the chief popularizer of what's what he calls polarity management, and uh, his phrase is um, that that when it comes to an interdependent polarity, it, it, it's a system to be managed rather than a problem to be solved. System to be managed rather than a problem to be solved. Yes, thank you. That was well said. And I also I also note that a lot of what I follow out there in culture are that is kind of this edge dweller energy of uh, individuals who are operating within a structure. So say you're operating within a traditional structure, but then advocating the values from a different, from a progressive structure within that and using 
the values. So it's really integrating the values of, say, progressivism into reflections of their counterpart in traditionalism, where we can look at Jesus's words, or we can look at traditional values from religion and say, wow, these really can integrate. We can synthesize these kinds of things to create something even more beautiful. Sure. Well, that's worth unpacking because it's highly politically relevant to our current moment. Yes. Uh, as I mentioned, these are cultural structures, right? And that they exist within us and people embody them, you know, in one way or another. So it's possible to be, to sort of identify with or, you know, hang around with uh, uh, people in, who, who are participating in one set of culture, even though you don't share all of the agreements that go with that set of culture, yes. right? So, for example, um, we see with uh, traditional religious forms of culture, that there's a bit of an inside and an outside, right? There's the believers and the non-believers, right? And, and uh, we can see this in a more general way in what's often known as ethnocentrism, right. you know, that my people are more morally worthy. And, and although we look down on ethnocentrism today, th that was a very important step, right, from, from egocentrism, where all that mattered was you to all that matters is my people. That's an evolutionarily right. positive step, right? Although we would now want to move beyond that. Modernity brings in a more of an international uh, set of understanding. And now with progressive postmodernism, we have a very, the, the ethic is a world-centric ethic, right? That not only do, does everybody in the world is worthy of moral recognition, equal moral recognition, but all sentient beings, right? Animals and, you know, the environment. So there's a deeply egalitarian ethos that goes with progressivism, a, a world-centric morality. But one of the problems, I mentioned the progressive postmodernism's political impetacy, uh, it's, it's, it can be difficult to get people who are embedded within a modernist or traditionalist uh, cultural frame to embrace a thoroughly world-centric morality, yes. right? And there's good reasons for that, right? If we had a completely open border, that would be more world-centric than, than, you know, thinking in nationalistic terms. But it wouldn't be long before the problems of, you know, Central America, for example, became more and more. In other words, there's, there are um, evolutionarily appropriate reasons, although we want to be compassionate, we, we can't just embrace a thoroughly world-centric uh, morality right now. Uh, we have to do it in, in, in a stepwise process, okay? So, but this world-centric morality is highly commendable, very important. All future evolution kind of depends on the, uh, you know, the, the inclusion of that yes. in whatever transcendence we make. Yes. Right? So I want to I wanna really validate that. But I also want to point out that that's one of the reasons that, that progressivism is, is remains, or at least up until recently here, has remained relatively politically impotent because world centrism is, is hard for people to adopt, you know, in any kind of realistic way. Uh, and so because of the, the, among the different strands of progressivism, at least politically, they've been trying to rediscover a form of transcendence or higher purpose that can galvanize people politically and bring, you know, the majority of the population into this progressive value frame, right, which is a, a you know, an important project. But, you know, environmentalism, right? They can't get the rest of the society to care enough, right? Economic inequality, right? It's it, people are still worried about their taxes. They're still worried about you know the electric car is not going to be rechargeable, right? So so there's all kinds of ways in which they these propositions of transcendence within progressive politics have have failed to garner the adequate um, you know uh, uh, electoral majority that's necessary to bring the political will for these things into into, into manifestation. But recently, um, you know, racial equality has been a proposition of transcendence, which has, we can see within progressive postmodernism from the beginning, right? In other words, from the 60s, the civil rights movement was a very important higher purpose that, that almost all postmodernists shared, and, you know, which I share, I'm sure you share, we all share this racial equality ideal. And um, while the civil rights movement made significant progress, there's other ways in which these stubborn inequalities persist. And so it was only natural that, um, that this concern about the stuckness of racial, the progress of racial equality had been stalled out in America, yes. at least as it was perceived, that that struck a nerve, 
right? That it, that it was able to create political will and a sense of transcendence like environmentalism or income inequality or the other idea, feminism, the other ideas have not had the same impact, right? So we saw this gusher of transcendence in the 2020 with George Floyd and the Great uh, uh, Awakening, as it's called. Um, and we also see that part of the way that that was able to gain a lot of traction was because many of the people who were in, who were the leaders of that movement had a very militant us and them mentality, right? That they were able to find a sense of transcendence by regressing to essentially an ethnocentric version, right? By making, you know, white men the new other, right? The new enemy. And, and that vilification served as a politically galvanizing ideal, but it was far less than, uh, you know, world-centric morality, right? Where everybody counts and we're all one. So, so we can recognize a partial regression uh, within progressivism as it attempts to find political relevance and political will. And you know, while we can lament that as a major contributor to our current culture war, we could say that you know the election of Donald Trump was partially predicated on that. You know, the 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 animosity that progressive postmodernism uh, exhibited toward America as a nation and toward. Uh, you know, white people as a race. Uh, and so being able to understand these dynamics can help us appreciate that progressive postmodernism is still a very beautiful and, and the most evolved form of culture that's yet to appear and that we can embrace it and celebrate it. But as we begin to see it moving around and, and regressing in certain ways and becoming more ethnocentric and, and, and embracing people who don't share a world-centric morality, even though they may be part of that culture, these are, or we can take these in our stride because these are the emergence of problematic life conditions that signal the opportunity for the next great the next. Uh, emergence in history. Thank you. And so I, I look at the, 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 the problems which we're now seeing you know, from progressive postmodernism as, a, as a, a golden opportunity to not just leave progressivism behind or vilify it, but it transcended and included something higher. Thank you. Yeah, very well said. And to kind of throw a frame in from the Mankind Project, right, is that's self-reflective. We we use ideas about Jungian ideas, golden shadow, right? We use the ideas of shadow. And the self-reflective, even if I know that I'm anchored in a particular worldview, to be self-reflective enough to see the drawbacks to see the failures of the worldview that I'm in, to acknowledge the positive values on the other side. And then we can get into a dialogue with each other. It creates a different kind of real life dialectic between different worldviews where we can both acknowledge the gold of what I'm bringing and the drawbacks that I'm bringing. And then I can see, oh, wow, you're bringing something really beautiful too. Let's sure. try and integrate but I mean, I can just comment on that by saying that that we certainly are going to, in order to overcome the culture war, we've got to create dialogue, yeah. right? But but many of the people who are working on it, their their paradigm for understanding it is like a bad marriage, right? We just need mediation. We're just going to get people to talk and realize their commonalities, and that's a good idea. I like that, but it's going to take more than that because we, we can't. We can't just sort of pretend that these conflicts don't exist. These conflicts are very important. Mm. And while people can work out these conflicts in conversation, one of the things that cultural intelligence can do for those who adopt it and begin looking at the world through this perspective is that we can begin to you know, solve these conflicts or have these dialogues within our own opinions within our own awareness, yes. right? So we don't necessarily have to wait for traditionalists and progressives yes. to, to uh, reconcile between it. We can start demonstrating what that recon reconciliation looks like, yes. right? We can do it for them. And gradually, as, the, um, as the, 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 this, this integral perspective demonstrates what uh, transcendent inclusion looks like, then that's going to be something that's easier for people in other these other stages of the culture to understand and to begin to embrace in the same way that environmental consciousness right is an achievement of progressivism it's trickled down to the larger culture where many people who are modernists and traditionalists recognize the need to preserve the environment and care for the creation etc right. so this form of consciousness isn't just for people who are able to transcend progressivism and enter into this synthetic understanding it's also something that could be used as as, you know, in in this this frame of cultural intelligence, 
by anybody uh, who's in, uh, you know, in, in organizations or you know, in society and encounters these conflicts. Beautiful. We've been together for about an hour now. So maybe I'm going to say that we should get back together and talk about virtue at a different time. How would you feel about that? Sure. Virtues, uh, the ancient uh, uh, practice of, of, of uh, healthy and happy living. One of my favorite subjects, I talk about it in detail uh, in uh, uh, Developmental Politics, my 2020 book. I also have an online character development exercise oh, good. Uh, on my yeah. various websites. It's called Your Portrait of the Good. And it asks you, takes you through a practice of understanding, you know, who and what is most important to you and how coming up with your own um, uh, suite of virtues that you can aspire to become, that that actually uh, is good for you personally and it can make you more effective in your work. Nice. I will get that link from you and I'll include it in the show notes down below. So I have two more questions. These are, these are intended to be short answer questions. What's something that you love about men and want to see them embody more in the world? Sure. Well, you're much more of an expert, you know, on men and women and what it means to be a man than me, right? This is not the, the major focus of my work. But just to touch on what we talked about earlier, these indestructible polarities, how they are you know, natural features of the universe in a way, almost the laws of internal physics. Um, one very important and indestructible polarity can be seen as the masculine and feminine. And uh, you know, the, the masculine and the feminine is not equal with men and women, Thank you. But, Great. but this polarity is nevertheless indestructible. And while uh, it's not as if people are condemned to be either masculine or either feminine, um, I would say that one of the ways that, that using this principle of affirming you know, the value of, the, of your, the, the pole that is opposite to your own, if you're a man, uh, that, that it, what it means to be masculine um, is, is, is something we can embrace fully, but appreciate that, um, that masculinity when it's creating value for us as an as you know an identity and as an orientation, that that can benefit significantly from the incorporation of of um, of, of femininity or you know what what we might characterize as the uh, the value creating capacities of the feminine, and we've seen this with progressivism. I mean, we we now recognize over the last. I mean, in, if we look at the our societal notions of masculine and feminine in this in the fifties or the sixties, yes. those seem like a, a cartoon now, right? right? Because we recognize that that for men to become sensitive and you know emotional that that things were once associated with feminine is an important way for mature masculinity to manifest yeah. same with feminine right being strong and independent that are you know stereotypically masculine that these are important elements for you know what it means to be a woman or a feminine person regardless of your biology today so I, again there's 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 nothing wrong with androgyny or you know meeting in the middle but there is a kind of a, a charge in the universe between these between these polarities, right? Again, I mentioned Emerson and the physical and the spiritual. If you ever play with a magnet and you try to find the center of a magnet, right, it throws you to one side or the other, right? Because there's no stable middle. It's not as if it's just a gradient. There's actually a, a system, and the system has poles. So we begin to understand the energetic charge, right, that we feel in our, you know, libidinous eros. And as we see working out, you know, just in the character of our civilization, that that we can take it further. We can, we, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to fall for the fallacy that says one pole bad, the other pole good, right? Masculinity toxic, right? Femininity the way forward, the future, right? We can understand that this is a permanent polarity, and that as men, we're we're kind of naturally associated with the masculine. And one of the things we can do is, is evolve what it means to be a man by evolving our understanding of this masculine pole and integrating it effectively with the feminine pole. Well said. Steve McIntosh, I'm, again, honored, grateful that you took this time with me. Uh, look for links. Well, first of all, give us your website so that I it's in the podcast. Right, sure. So the primary website I want people to visit is uh, you know my nonprofit organization, Developmental Politics, which is a subsidiary of the Institute for Cultural Evolution. Its website is developmentalpolitics.org. So go there first. Um, I also have uh, my author website, stevemacintosh.com, and there's, of course, a lot of overlap. 
but there are, um, you know, there's lots of, of excerpts and videos about my books, especially the more spiritual books that are uh, only on the stevemacintosh.com site, whereas developmental politics is obviously focused on the political elements, um, although, you know, I can't help but... Uh, uh, talk about the spiritual in that context. My latest article, The Spiritual Significance of the Rise of AI, uh, your viewers might be interested in that. That's published on um, a developmental politics and it's it's political magazine. Yeah, so uh, on Twitter, go to at politics develop, at politics develop. Uh, there's a 40-minute expansion of that article about the spiritual significance of AI. I recommend it. Very good talk. Um, so go check out Steve McIntosh and find developmental politics. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Boyson. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Mankind Podcast produced in association with the Mankind Project USA. I have been your host, Brandon Clift, and I personally want to thank our guests for joining us today and imparting their wisdom from their experiences in this amazing journey called life. Now, the fee for this episode is simple. If you found gold and insights that you believe could benefit your loved ones and those you care about, be sure to share it with them. And of course, remember that life doesn't happen to us. It happens for us. So long as we rip the pen out of fate's hand and become the author of our own story. So my friend, pick up the pen and we'll see you next week. Lots of love.